Welcome to Tea Time History Chat Live. Today we're going to talk about King John because it is 807 years since he died. It's quite a long time ago, but he had an everlasting impact for somebody who was really one of the most inept uh, kings and monarchs of this country. Um, we all know his name, so let's have a chat about him anyway, because it is it is 870 years ago today that he died. So um, welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining me. If you're joining me live, I'm streaming live on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. But also if you are watching on the catch up or you are listening on the podcast, a very warm welcome to you too. Thank you very much for your support. Please um, like this video, do hearts, share it with your friends if you think they're interested. Um, and I hope you can hear me on YouTube. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hopefully you did get all of that. But basically, today is going to be about King John. If you are on the catch up and you want to scrub to the King John bit, please do miss the first few minutes because I do have some other stuff I want to chat to you about before we go on with that. Also, I want to say hello to everyone. So hello, I can see Anaga, Jonathan, Alina, Dorothy. Um, who else have we got? Sorry, everybody on Instagram. They go, Jin, uh, Jinsak uh, from Bourbon. Um, I can see loads of people joining. Sorry, uh, on Instagram, I do lose them quite at the uh, comments quite quickly. So welcome. So King John. So we're going to be going back to um, the 12th and early 13th century. So, and also what I must say is this is a, um, right, can I just say there's going to be no political talk or anything in the chat. We're just talking history today. Um, so no apologies for um, not getting off track. Uh <laughs> Dorothy doesn't want to scrub to any of John's middly bits or eight-leggy bits, indeed. Well, this isn't history after dark, but yeah, we will be discussing John. We did do a um a episode on history after dark about King John, so you can look that up as well. Um he scored very highly in the history after dark deceased gits uh league, which is almost coming to a close. You can meet us uh, tonight. We're live tonight at 8.30, slightly uh, later tonight than usual because, um, well, because actually I have to go up to my daughter's school till eight o'clock. So that's that's why. Um, thank you, Joran. Really lovely to have you here. Um, so yes, a history after dark tonight, we will be discussing, now that, right, okay, we got to X. Um, and we did some incredible linguistic and uh, me mental gymnastics to get to the candidate for tonight, which is the, well, we got to Crossbone Cemetery, which is in um, Southwark, part of the uh, leg uh, um, um, Liberty of the Clink. The, anyway, we'll explain all tonight, but basically we're going to be doing the Bishops of Winchester and, uh, and Crossbone Cemetery. So join us tonight if you are around for History After Dark. It's 8.30, history.afterdark on Instagram, History After Dark on YouTube. But um, anyway, so what else would I, what did I want to say? Yes, please do give it a thumbs up and hearts on Instagram and all of that kind of malarkey. I would like to give a shout out to um, Melanie. She's joined my Patreon this week and um, 
that is my preferred way if you want to support me that uh, that you do because I get to give you so much back including membership of book club which um which we're voting at the moment on which books we're going to be reading next year so in 2024 and we have an um our current book is the sisters who would be queen by leander delisle and we are meeting on the 12th of november if you haven't read that book or you don't think you've got time to get through it all before that meeting but you would like to come along don't worry lots of people come along to their first meeting before they've read the book just to see how it goes so you are um more than welcome at all times to to join my patreon i love having people there we love we've got a lovely little community going colleen what, uh, good morning um dorothy yeah jonathan knox had already been done for k x was a stretch yeah do you know i never even thought about doing knox for x so very, very very good elena hi hi everyone so um was that all was that all my announcements oh i do have if you're interested in coming on tour with me I do have um, an announcement about that, but I'll leave that till later so that we can get into the crux of what we're here to talk about today. Um, I've got some spaces that have come up um, for a tour that was fully booked. So um, if you're thinking you couldn't come to the May Anne Boleyn tour, then actually you may, you may well be able to. So, um, so yeah, let's talk about King John. Well, he certainly wasn't boring that's for sure. So let's give him a bit of context. What I'll also say is at the end, I will give you um, three books that I would recommend you read if you want to know more about King John and about the period in which he lived. So, but anyway, so bearing in mind that it is, um, <laughs> it's, it's a complex um, period and but let's say let's go for it. It's incredibly interesting. So John, he um, he was born actually on Christmas Eve, twenty fourth of December, eleven sixty six, at Oxford, and he was the son of Henry the Second and uh, his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, he was the fourth and youngest surviving son. So ahead of him, in the family tree. In the um, just grabbing my tea, <laughs> in the uh, uh, line of succession were three elder brothers. You had um, Henry, another Henry, obviously named after his uh, his father, Richard, who we would know better as Richard the Lionheart, and Geoffrey, and then you had John. Now, Henry the Second managed to fall out with all his sons at some point and and his wife and this is mainly down to him he just would not relinquish any power so his sons are brought up as you know warrior um as warriors as knights this is this is very interesting period um where the concept of what it was to be a knight and knighthood um and chivalry and all this is developing. It's very, um, very interesting. And I've got a book um, which is fantastic for going through how that all developed. Because we all, I, um, you know, it has to. Everything has to have started somewhere. But the idea of chivalry and being a knight and everything, we, I kind of always felt like it went back so far. But where did it start? Well, it starts around this period. And um, anyway, so I will give you um, a book that's great to go through that. 
at the end. Sorry, I'm going to be sipping my tea today because I'm getting a bit croaky. So, um, so they're, 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 they're raised for their job, but they're not given any actual responsibility. And of course, Eleanor, 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 I mean, uh, could do a whole, whole thing on Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, she is, uh, actually a ruler in her own right as, uh, the Duchess of, uh, Brittany, oh, Duchess, is that what they called them? And, um, she, um, hello, Amanda. <laughs> Finally caught alive. You haven't missed anything, really. Just the introduction. We're talking about King John because it's uh, well, why not? It's eight hundred and seven years since he died today. So let's do a little look at him and just putting him into context. His father's Henry II. He's the fourth surviving son. I think there was another son who died at around three years old. But he's went by the time he's born. He's the fourth son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Both. Very interesting characters in their own right. Eleanor of Aquitaine, incredibly powerful woman, considered um, you, you know, in Brittany, um, sorry, in Aquitaine, not Brittany, obviously, in Aquitaine, she is considered, you know, their, their ruler. And Henry II is kind of, is via his wife there. Um, and um, she wants her sons to, to take the power that they should. Now, what Henry II would do is bestow uh, castles and lands on his sons. So his sons are, like I said earlier, Henry, um, Richard, Geoffrey, and then and then John is the is the youngest. But by the time John is born, um, so he's born 24th of December 1166. Um Sorry, when he's four years old, so only when he's he's small, his eldest brother Henry is is crowned in kind of a um, uh, a ceremony that has since long, long fallen out of. I suppose in favour of crowning or, or being um, created Prince of Wales in England. But the idea is, and it, and it was an older idea, the Aetheling idea, you know, heir to the throne, recognised heir to the throne. So Henry the Young King, you may have heard of. That is Henry II's eldest son, Henry the Young King. And he is promised by his father all these, you know, lands and responsibilities. And then Henry is never forthcoming in actually giving these to his son. Um, and he's the same with his other two sons as well, Richard and Geoffrey. John, like I say, is only small at the time that his elder brother Henry is is crowned Henry the Young King. Um, now at that point, Henry is promised, I'm going to look at my notes, Normandy and Anjou. Uh, Richard is appointed Count of uh, uh, Poitou, 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 I'm so sorry about my French, um, and has control of, um, of, of Aquitaine in his, obviously by his mother. And Geoffrey is uh, promised, well, he becomes Duke of Brittany. But like I said, these are all sort of titles and Henry doesn't want to relinquish any of the actual, um, <laughs> yeah, like Manda says, I feel like Henry created most of his own problems. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, you know we all know that people without a purpose generally, it's not good it's not good and and they could have been such a strong team it, it's it's um it, it feels like a, a big shame but this is at the point um where he jokingly refers to and it's come down to us as john as lackland um 
he used the French for it, which I can't remember at the moment. But yeah, so he's he's jokingly nicknamed Lapland because he's he's four years old and he hasn't um, he hasn't bestowed any land on him at this point. Don't know what he thought would happen in the future if he's already carved it out in between between the other three. Um, but anyway, we shall see. So yeah, because he has this tight control of power. Um, the relationship he has with his sons and with his um, his wife it becomes very strained. Um, and the, the, the um, uh, he, he's 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 sowing the seeds of rebellion because he's he's creating schisms within his own family. Um, so of course, as soon as um, <laughs> as soon as there's there's something, let's put this into context. Henry II, I don't want to forget this bit because this is this is key. Henry II is the king who who you know will you rid me anyone someone rid me of this troublesome um priest talking about Beckett. So Thomas Beckett is murdered supposedly reportedly possibly on the orders of Henry II. He's murdered in 1170. Um end of December 1170. He is made a saint. I think it's within three years. I can't see where that is on my notes, but I think it's within three years. He, um, slight tangent, but with, with Thomas Beckett, he was sort of not very, he, was, he wasn't as popular in life as he was in death, which actually I think goes for quite a few people. Um, and the, um, his, his, um, uh, the, cult's not the right word, but grew up around him and, and pilgrims almost immediately start coming to the site of his martyrdom and his, um, and a shrine is, well, well, they, they, um, sorry, the shrine's created after he's, he's made a saint, but, um, miracles are being reported and etc. So, so the cult of Thomas Beckett is strong and he's been murdered by Henry II's knights. So Henry II has a massive uphill struggle in terms of PR. Back this up with um, um, the fact that he's he's already creating these divisions within between himself and his sons, and you um, you sow the seeds of a rebellion, and that that surfaced in eleven seventy three. So. Um, John, our John, our John, is still a child at this point, but his three elder brothers rise up against his father. Their mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, is in support of her sons against her really estranged husband by this point. Um, they, uh, the, the, the three sons have the backing of the French and the Scots, um they're backing who they think will be the winner for ex in exchange for um promises of land and titles etc if and when henry the young king already crowned already um recognized as the next in line if he wins they get all this all this now henry the second is an incredible warrior, has to be said. And he manages to put down this um, this rebellion. Um, 
so the rebellion, yeah, it starts in 1173, April 1173. In July 1174, he decides maybe this is a, this maybe this is God's punishment for his role in the murder of Thomas Beckett. And when he returns to England from fighting over in Normandy, the first thing he does pretty much is go to Canterbury and um, and do penance at shrine of, of of Thomas Beckett as it's as it was at the time. Now that atonement appeared to do the trick. At least in his eyes, it did the trick because then a, a band of his men loyal to him managed to capture the King of Scotland, who remember is supporting Henry's um, uh, sons in their rebellion against him. They managed to catch uh, the King of Scotland called William the Lion. There's lots of lions around this time. Um, and and that sets sets in motion a sort of domino effect. And Henry basically goes around and sweeps up submissions and uh, from uh, and surrenders from the, from the rest of the country after that. So after 18 months of fighting him, his sons come back to him, tail between their legs, um, to, yeah, hands up, Dad, you won. <laughs> now, John... Uh, so he would have been, what, six or seven at the time, spends all of that conflict at his father's side. His mother, by the way, is in captivity because that's what Henry II did to Eleanor when he found out that she was in support of her sons. Um, so, so John spent all this time of the rebellion next to his father, Henry II. Um, and... I suppose not unsurprisingly, he becomes Henry's favourite child. I mean, it's not a great competition, <laughs> is it? Or the other three have risen up against their father. So for John to be the favourite, I think, is um, maybe overstating um, <laughs> or overassuming the closeness, closeness of the relationship. However, it will be shown later. Henry did have an affection. He thought, right, I've lost the 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 um my eldest three. I can't really trust them anymore. I don't know about their loyalty, but at least I've got my little boy John. Well, um, yeah, we shall see. So one of the things that came from that is John was no longer Lackland because his dad his father, I should say, excuse me, his father started to um, to give him lands. Now, as I said, they're already um, ascribed to someone else. So, of course, this causes issues as well. So, um, he's he's actually made um, in uh, yeah. So, so sorry, Henry um, dismisses his Lord uh, of Ireland, uh, a man called William Fitzaldelm, Aldelm, Fitzaldelm, <laughs> um, and he gave that position to John. John's only 10 years old. So um, Amanda says, would John have spent much time with his mother? That's a very good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Perhaps when he was very young, but they have, they have lands everywhere um certainly by this point i think um no she's on the continent and john's here um i think he's certainly with his father anyway 
Um, now there's then more infighting between the brothers this time. So Henry the Young King fights against um, uh, Richard, his 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 brother Richard in 1183 over um, over. England and Norman and Aquitaine, how that's, that's going to be ruled. Um, Henry II moves in support of Richard. And then Henry the Young King, before anything else can happen, actually dies of dysentery. Um, awful, awful way to go. Um, so that means the uh, plans for the succession have to be re-looked at anyway. So Richard then becomes um, Henry II's heir. Um, and um, so he he's going to be his heir in terms of uh, being made king of England again though without any actual power until Henry II actually dies Henry II does not seem to learn from this it's just it's an obey me obey me um, um, but uh, that would that meant that this shuffle around means that Geoffrey would then retain um, Brittany and John would now become the Duke of Aquitaine in place of Richard. Richard doesn't want to give up Aquitaine though. Um, so, um, so then they fight again. So Henry II fights with Richard this time to forcibly take the duchy um, and he takes Geoffrey on his side and of course he's doing it for, for John. So um, you just have these the war ends in a in a kind of stalemate. I mean, Henry II's giving out these lands and these these positions, but he's not giving that much of the power with it anyway. Um, and so there's again this tense sort of family reunion sort of thing in the at the end of 1184. But then Geoffrey dies. We're uh, at a, a tournament, and so you now only have Richard left and John. So you only have two of the brothers left. Um, and Richard is desperate to go off on crusade. He really wants to go off on crusade, but he doesn't want to go because he thinks that in his absence, his father is going to make John his heir. John is his favourite. John so far hasn't actually done anything to annoy his father. Um so Richard decides that what he's going to do is make an alliance with the French king, uh, Philip II, um, and, and wage war against his own father again. So Richard, who would become known as the Lionheart, just for reference, and, and King Philip II of, of, of uh, France um, fight, fight a joint campaign against Henry II of England. Henry II doesn't lose many battles, I have to say, in this. Um, and um, by the summer of 1189, the king has reassured Richard that, no, he is the next in line. Um, but actually, during that conflict, John, so this is right at the end, we're coming right to the end of Henry II's life. Um, John sides with his brother Richard when he's he's, he's fighting against uh, Henry II. Henry II finds this out just before he dies. So he dies heartbroken that 
even that he he lost the loyalty of all his sons, but he, at the last moment he lost his the loyalty of his favourite son, John. So, eleven eighty nine, Henry the Second dies, and so Richard the Lionheart becomes king. Now, Richard the Lionheart is still itching to go off on the Third Crusade. This is what he absolutely wants to do, but he doesn't. Um, he doesn't trust his own brother John. Um, he's not sure about his loyalty. He's not sure what he might do while he's away. Well, actually, um, that wasn't um, <laughs> that wasn't a bad call actually um, from from Richard when he did leave. John did try to take power. He tried to to um, push himself into positions of authority. Tried to extract money off people. Um, it's a long and drawn out story that we haven't really got time for here. But again, like I say, I'll give you some reading material. I'll give you some homework if you want it um, <laughs> later on, just so you can get so into this. It's a, it's incredible. But um, Richard is king for 10 years. He's in the country for six months. Again, actually, we've covered him as well in... Um, in one of the History After Dark episodes, if you want to check it out, because he gets captured, uh, uh, Richard does. Um, but it, it, anyway, eventually in 1199, excuse me, um, uh, Richard dies. And so John does become king. So he, he's the fourth son. He starts off with no lands, he, but he ends up through the deaths of his brothers um, inheriting the throne. And he's going to be king for 17 years. And during those 17 years, um, so I mean, to no one where near as long a reign as other people or as other monarchs, or but he he builds up a reputation that lasts till the present day. Um so let's talk about John's reputation, um, what he did, what he didn't do, you know. You'd have thought with with the names that 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 echoes down the centuries that perhaps he was a great warrior, perhaps he was a great advocate of his people, perhaps he was I don't know um, successful on the battlefield. Maybe he's maybe he he is the one who created everlasting peace. No, 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 no. Nope. Um, and historians and contemporaries actually seem to be um uh yes yeah, definitely we'll get on to Arthur definitely um he seems to um uh I forgot what I was going to say now sorry but yeah no oh yes that's it historians and contemporaries um seem to agree that he was a terrible terrible person um he was a terrible leader he was a terrible um statesman he was a terrible human being so let's look at a few things there historian mark morris um this is one of the books i may as well show you now that i was going to recommend it's literally king john by mark morris F fantastic book um he he describes him as a total jerk so he's he's done a biography on him um um and uh yeah, sorry, no, I was just looking. So, um, Marie, um, this is King John. So, John of Gaunt is um, a few, uh, he is a couple of centuries later, 
not quite a couple of centuries, but he's he's in the 14th century. Is he born in the 14th century into the 15th century? Helen, Helen um, yeah, Carl's book on, on uh, the Red Prince, uh, John of Gaunt is fantastic. So, yeah, no, we're talking King John. So um, he was also described... Um, no, I'll come back to that. On his death, he was he was yeah he was described wonderfully by um, Matthew uh, Matthew Paris, one of the monks. Anyway, um, so Amanda says, I wonder how much John's infamy in the modern public consciousness is due to media. So the thing is with John, um, I if there were any particular redeeming features about John, I think he would have had a kind of Richard III style counter culture movement. Um, he doesn't. And it's actually, it, it, this is why I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you recommendations for, for things to read afterwards if you want to, because what he's, he did over his life and you just got a taster there of what his brothers and father were like as well. It is not like he was sort of um, going to come from uh, a nice stable home where he's been shown uh, sort of how to act around people. But the thing was, in an age of chivalry, John showed none. So when, um, for instance, if prisoners are taking, taken, excuse me, there is a... You know, there's a whole sort of, um, um, I want to say rule book, but um, I can't think of the word I'm, I'm after, but of of how those prisoners would be treated, under what circumstances they would be, you know, released, how they would be kept, why they would be taken. And a lot of the times, um, or in a lot of cases, they're taken, so sons of noble families might be taken in exchange for loyalty. This is, it's a, it, there's, it's collateral um, for loyalty. Can people not hear me on Instagram? Brian's saying there's no sound. Let me know, people, on Instagram. Um, yeah, kind of a code of conduct, yeah. So, um, I mean, chivalry is sort of, is sort of that. Um, so... Um, yeah, the way he treats prisoners. So um, he's one of John's favourite. Um, oh, thank you. So some people can hear me, Brian. I don't know. Jins can hear me. Joanne can hear me. Stick up your volume, Brian. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, uh, yeah, he... Um, um, yeah, it's just you. Sorry, darling. Um, yeah, so starving to death was one of his favourite um, ways of... Um, dealing with his enemies. And I'm saying enemies, they're not always enemies. These can be people who just haven't um, complied. Um, there is incredible amount of toing and froing and um, uh, alliance changing uh, throughout this period to the point where I... <laughs> I was I have been reading so much in preparation for this like how do I summarize this and it's like everyone is altering I say everyone as a you know obviously 
not literally, but um, but to give you an idea, there's so much change in allegiance. Um, again, a really, I, mean, I will mention it now, actually, a really good book that I think helps to tell this. Um, there's, uh, Dan Jones, the Plantagenets book, by the way, is good for a great overview of this period. But to get into um, sort of how people were um, of, of, of nobility and obviously royal rank were supposed were um, uh, expected to behave, and when that was broken, I love this book. It's called The Greatest Night by Thomas Ashbridge, and it's about um, William Marshall. And William Marshall, who you may know as The Greatest Night, um, he served five of the monarchs so he he served henry the second henry the young king uh richard the, uh excuse me richard the lionheart uh king john and then king john's son henry the third um and it, <laughs> how he survived that <clears throat> is very very interesting anyway so that's that's a uh that's a um a, a recommended so why don't we tackle Arthur first? So I already mentioned that uh, John had three elder brothers. Henry the Young King and Richard the Lionheart died without issue. Um, but Geoffrey had had a son called Arthur. Um, and uh, he was Arthur, uh, Duke of Brittany, or became Duke of Brittany. Um, he again in this in this complicated and always uh there's always a conflict it feels uh maybe there is i haven't charted it on a on a sort of calendar but it feels like there's always a conflict um in this and changing of allegiances and um etc etc arthur does um rise up with the support or maybe as the um, figurehead of uh, Philip Augustus's Philip Augustus of uh, France. I keep want to say Spain, not Spain. Spain's not involved at all. France, um, as as his figurehead to rise up against uh, uh, or to fight against John, and um, Arthur is involved in that. However. Uh, uh, when Arthur is uh, he's captured in 1202, when he's captured, he is uh, is either 15 or 16 years old. So he's already been knighted, which is a uh, by Philip Augustus, um, which you know is sort of a rite of passage into adulthood. But he, clearly, he's he has um, uh, influential men around him. You could also argue that what choice has he got? Um, John, it, despite having no heirs at this time, does not really want to make peace with Arthur. Um, so, so John, um, it, so Arthur is captured, and John orders his imprisonment. He's kept very, very, in very, very poor conditions. Again, the chivalry is missing here with John, um, and. The nobles of Brittany are angered by Arthur's continuous, uh, continual um, uh, incarceration, and uh, and and they start to attack John's castles and 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 holdings in Brittany. 
Um, in response to that, Arthur, now stop eating or close your ears if you if you if you don't want to hear something gross. Um, John orders for Arthur's eyes to be put out and and him to be castrated. The idea being that he would be useless as a leader and therefore he can't be a figurehead. He can't he can't rise in rebellion himself, but he also can't be a figurehead for anyone else who wants to um to knock John off. Um now the the, the Pope at the time, uh, and I find this incredible, but actually fully, fully don't find it that exceptional either it sort of says well Arthur gets what he deserves he's been treacherous you know he's risen up against his own lord he's treacherous he 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 gets his just desserts uh whatever they may be um and actually some in England may have agreed with that point of view but in France they certainly didn't um while he still lived he was a well He's been basically taken out of the equation by this, but that doesn't stop John in, this is not proved, but the legend goes that John, um, well, I think it was on Christmas, one Christmas, he was drunk anyway, decides to go and uh, uh, go to where Arthur is, is I think they're, they're celebrating it in the same castle. But anyway, um, he, he goes and he actually um, kills Arthur with his own bare hands. Um, and anyone who he, who John knows has supported Arthur is, is captured if they are captured and is taken to Corfe Castle. And of course, John's favorite form of torturous death, starvation. They, they try and escape. And then when they try and escape, he, they, they get put back in and, uh, their food supply is cut off horrendous um he doesn't keep that uh sort of behavior just to his his enemies um i think maybe this is a man that either has paid mercenaries um uh, sycophants or frenemies so he he's 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 a tyrant and he will do things like demand uh with with every uprising he's he's trying to um, demand more loyalty by any which way. And he's done loads of things to annoy, uh, everyone in his country. One, he's losing the lands in France. He, He just can't hold on to them. He's rubbish. And for every time he's trying to raise an army and go back and get his lands, he's taxing. He he takes a uh, a um, he takes a very hands-on approach to the court system, ruling and fining as he goes to extract money out of people. And after one of these um, rebellions, he is um, he's demanding that every noble house, uh, I think it's every noble house, pretty much sends a son or some, someone as collateral to um, to uh, secure their um, their loyalty to him. And the story goes, um, and this is according to Roger of Wendover, that when they went to the house of William D. Uh, Brose, um, his wife, uh, who's called Matilda, 
refused to hand over their son to a, a man who, and this is from, from the, the Chronicle, basely murdered his nephew, Arthur. For that, it is thought, but they certainly ended up imprisoned Matilda and her son in Corfe Castle. Um, <clears throat> and you can guess what happened to them there. Um, John orders that they are not fed and they starve to death together in a cell. It is just horrendous, horrendous. Um, um, he, um, oh gosh, I mean, he, he, um, he fell out with the Pope and, uh, the country was, um, under interdict for, I can't remember how many years now, a lot. Have I written that down anywhere? Um, 1205, he disagreed with the Pope. Yeah. Over, this is, I mean, it's really quite pathetic when you look back, but, but over the position of who should take a Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and, uh, um, the Pope wanted Stephen Langton. John wanted a, a guy called John de Grey, and that meant that 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 whole argument meant that the um, country was um, uh, was ex well, John was excommunicated, and the country went into a, an interdict for six years. And that means he's not protecting his people. He's not protecting his, the church. He's not protecting his people. That means that churches were deserted. There was no religious services. You couldn't um, uh, 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 commit your uh, dead. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't properly bury your dead. Um, and during that six years, that six-year period was another one of John's, uh, another example of John's um, just cold and psychopathic behaviour. Um he was, um, it, I've written here, John was not only having problems with barons, but the Welsh were providing, uh, were being problematic too. John has problems with everybody. Um, he, uh, the Welsh weren't wanting to be subjugated to the English. Um, especially this sorry, you know, excuse for it, for a king. Um, and so John, again, to, uh, guarantee um that they wouldn't rise up against him um has 28 boys taken um from welsh um noble families and kept in nottingham castle this is supposed to be you know collateral um but again john doesn't have the chivalry that he should to, to the, the rules the rule book is kind of is ripped up with John. Um, and John's out hunting, not haunting, hunting, uh, in Nottingham. Great forests. I mean, because they had them all made for themselves and no one else could go in them. So the forests are great for hunting. John loved it. Um, and John, while he's out hunting, is told that Llewellyn, um, uh, the Welsh Prince Llewellyn has risen up in rebellion against him. So supposedly without much checking, he rides to Nottingham and gives the order for all of the 28 boys to be hung. Um, horrendous. And remembering again, this is part, this is as well, 
during the interdict, so their souls are also damned. Um, um, there are other things he did. He, I mean, I've, I've mentioned about him getting his hand, hands on, sort of, you know, he travelled a lot. So that is one thing John did do, he's, he travelled the country a lot. Everywhere you go, there's sort of, you know, King John's Hunting Lodge or something, um, very close to where I am. Um, uh, King John had a hunting lodge. Um, it's gone now, but um, the surrounding area was, again, private forestry, um, forest for, for hunting for him. Um, but he also taxed he taxed people. So, uh, well, he charged the city of London 3,000 marks, marks at the time, to reaffirm their liberty. It's something they've already got. He just charges them again for it. Um, he, um, he would take... Uh, um, huge amounts of inheritance tax. So he, he, yeah, he would take a lot in terms of inheritance tax from his nobles. Um, he he, he um, promised to protect the Jewish community, but in return, as you can guess, for money. Um, and although he takes a keen interest in uh, in the judiciary, the, the court system. It's a way for him to um, to basically sell justice to the highest bidder. And then we come to the bit that John is the most famous for, erroneously um, credited with sometimes, and that's Magna Carta. And um, uh, where did I read this just? It reads, if you actually read it, um, the Magna Carta as really a um, a list of everything that John is doing wrong. Um, it's a oh I can't remember the phrase that that was used now, um, but anyway you can see that it's pointed towards towards John. I mean one of the clauses is about to no one shall we sell blah 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 or justice. You know it's about the fact that he's selling justice to the highest bidder. Um, and um, and so, we, you know, the Magna Carta comes about because um, it really has just got to the point where John and his barons or you know, your noblemen are at loggerheads. They, they, there's, there's no, um, there's the, well, the Magna Carta is almost a peace treaty, really. Now, charters weren't charters of. This is my words. I've never heard a historian say this, but anyway, charts of behaviour are not unusual. You know, I promise as your king to do this, 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 and this, protect this, protect the church, normally is first, and da da da. Um, but for one to be uh for one to be demanded from the king, but be written by uh by his nobles, his barons, then that's that's this is why it's different. Um, and um, so this is the summer of 1215 the barons have, have risen up against him they've got control of London um, we'll talk about the French occupation as well uh, quickly after this um, because it, well, it all sort of happens part and parcel of the same sort of thing um, but Magna Carta um, is thrashed out between the barons and and king john king john is uh, he he's he's at windsor castle the um barons are um they, well they've got control of the city of london and 
they meet at Runnymede, which is actually very close to Windsor. I've seen, I've heard it said, although it's in the middle, it's no, it's not the middle. It's basically still in Windsor. Um, it's very, it's a very short journey. It, it, Runnymede actually is supposed to be a, a, an ancient place of parlay, and um, anyway, it's chosen. It's also. Uh, bit boggy so it's supposed to not lend itself well to fighting um um yeah so and and, and they they it begins because it begins with something called the articles of the barons the articles of the barons and you can still see this in the um in the british library and sort of it's so you have this shuttle diplomacy one um uh list gets sent it gets amended it gets amended it gets sent back it gets amended and sent back and so on. and the, the you end up with with this this document that appears not to have been finished at the time where john has his seal added to it um and i think that is because john had had enough he'd lost patience and he wasn't going to honor it anyway so there was a clause that was unfinished and this clause appointed um, a number of overseers who were able to say, oh, John has broken the terms of um, of this charter. It was actually the charter of Runnymede to begin with. Magna Carta, as the name came later, um, and, and therefore we can we can sort of hold him to account. That, though, um, that 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 clause wasn't finished. So. There's the fact that the clause that it wasn't finished that gives evidence that John had just had enough and decided to just finish this these negotiations. Um, but what's more telling is that he immediately um, he immediately petitions the Pope to have it annulled, and in fact, seventy days after the creation of Magna Carta, it is annulled by the Pope. Pope Innocent II, he declares it null and void of all validity forever, which is kind of hilarious when you think about it, what happens to it afterwards and going over with the Pilgrim Fathers. And <laughs> so um, it's probably provided the base of, of many um, constitutions. But anyway, um, so um, because by this point, by this point, John, I mean, John will sell his soul he has um, he has made a promise that he will take the crusade. Well, he takes the crusaders' vow by this point because he is he's in such trouble with his own um, with his own nobles that he goes back to the pope, makes up with the pope, takes the crusaders' vow. That means that the pope is his protector as well as overlord of John's kingdom. So John basically gives away everything, um, and um, and so that's how he gets this um that's how he gets the pope's uh uh backing at that point um anyway, magna carta is a whole thing on its own in fact i've got a video or two uh, about magna carta that you can watch if you if you would like um but let's talk quickly about the french occupation because um by this point 1216 um uh, philippe of france is the king now his son is prince louis heir to the throne, recognised heir to the French throne. And the the barons of England invite him to come to England to take the land 
and um and to install him as king once they capture John and presumably put him to death. Um and so we in May 1216 we actually do have a French invasion of England albeit invited um and um I was trying to find a map. I really wanted to find a map for you. Maybe there's one, maybe if I take a little bit longer to find one of, um, oh, just thought I wonder if there's one in this book, um, <laughs> uh, of, of England under, uh, in 1216, because the, the, the French under Prince Louis actually have control of a, um, a, large large amount of the country almost half of England it's not just a little bit um you know on the on the coast um no there isn't one disappointed maybe I need to make one I need to know a bit more about it first but yeah so you've got almost half of England um in uh, the control of the barons and Prince Louis including London um <clears throat> And so um, uh, this is the state of affairs. Oh, by the way, also um, the King of Scotland, by this point, King Alexander, um, pays homage to Louis in Dover, at, uh, to, to Louis as the new King of England. So it looks really bad for John. And it looks like, you know, England is going to be once again taken in as part of, um, of the, the, the French um empire probably the wrong word um it happened it happened 200 years before why not again um and and of course it, the barons would have seen that that this is happening on their terms um john though in 1216 so he is he is he is going around the country at incredible speeds by the way he could he could cover 30 miles a day and then again and then again and then again he really could cover ground very quickly um and it's during one of these uh well sorry it's 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 in um uh, uh 1216 that he's doing this and he falls ill he falls quite seriously ill um and maybe it's because of something he ate. Maybe it's from exhaustion. Maybe it's a mixture of the both, of the two. Um, but he, um, this is when he famously loses, um, well, possibly, probably loses the crown or his crown. Maybe maybe the crown jewels, maybe the lot, I don't know. The crown certainly doesn't apparently turn up in inventories after this time period. And this is when he decides to take a shortcut across the, the wash. It's a, it's a um, tidal uh, river. And his baggage, part of his baggage train gets sucked into the sand. Um, he, I mean, horses are lost and men are lost and part of the baggage train. Um, the um uh, uh chapter sorry um uh chapel items including holy relics are lost and his crown is lost um apparently so and and this illness that has grabbed john he doesn't recover from he's trying to still travel anyway eventually he has to just decide he can't um and he's at newark castle and he he dies in the on the, the the evening of the 18th of today over to the 19th 
of October. Um, and like I say, there's 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 these uh, accounts that he ate. Um, was it uh, peaches and and uh, new cider? Um, he'd been ill for a few weeks, so um, either way, it was not a nice end. Shall I put it that way? <laughs> Although we've talked about probably worse things, but dysentery like end anyway. Um, oh, I shouldn't say end, but yeah, death. Um, so he's. Um, and at the, and so he has a horrible death. It kind of like a fitting death, perhaps. And um, the Benedictine monk and chronicler Matthew of Paris writes, "Foul as it is, hell itself is made fouler by the presence of John." Now he lives after John, but the, but this is this is the attitude toward John. So what happens next? Because. England is in the middle of a civil war. It, um, the English barons have invited the French prince to come, basically treating him as king of England. He's got half the country. And now John, the, the centre of all this, um, of all of this, all this reasoning to up, to rise up and, and, um, uh, and rebel has gone. And he is, he, he, um, has heirs. His his son Henry is nine years old. Um, he has another son called Richard as well, um, and so he's succeeded by his nine year old son Henry. And um, at this point, um, the uh, the reason for the barons' uprising is sort of gone it ebbs away and um and prince louis loses support but henry the third is crowned um very swiftly at gloucester cathedral well gloucester abbey then um dedica dedicated to saint paul's so also you could see it as saint paul's abbey gloucester if you if you see it rent out um and um yeah and he is he is uh crowned at that's what how come he's crowned at gloucester abbey um there's there's oh and he's, he's he's also crowned with um with his mother Isabella of Angoulême who's his mother John's wife second wife he gets rid of his first one to marry his second one but keeps all the inheritance from his first wife as well by the way so there's another another nice thing it also bed everyone's wives and daughters and sisters as well he like he he corrupted every um sort of rule of how you are with anyone he came across by the sound of it so you know he's 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 really little um but yeah with with his death allegiances quickly turn and they say oh well actually we've got nine-year-old henry now um we're okay with that and and support like i say for for prince louis of france um sort of goes um That is again. That's probably and that's another story for another day. Henry the Third. He he actually though just as an aside, I will tell you he um uh, has a second coronation uh, later at Westminster Abbey. So Westminster Abbey has been the scene of every coronation or every monarch to have a coronation. It has been Westminster Abbey, but Henry the Third actually has his first coronation 
at uh, at Gloucester Abbey. John's body is taken all the way from Newark Castle to Worcester Cathedral. Now, John knows that he's dying at the very end and he dictates a will. Now, I've seen this will um, and anyone who is coming on the Rise of the Tudors tour next September, September 2024, will also see his will because it's in Worcester Cathedral archives, which we're having a private tour of. And it's only short, it's only little. Um, and in and in in it, he says he would like to be buried at Worcester. And there's there's been the reason um, <laughs> yeah, there's been the reason uh, of uh, given that it's it's the home of um, the shrines of St Wollstone and St uh, Oswald, I think it is, uh, and that that's why he wants to be buried there. But also remember, I've just said when he dies, the French prince has got hold. Uh, a control of half of England. He can't go to a Westminster or, you know, he, he, he this is, and, and he's lost all his, his uh, lands in France. He can't be buried where his brother and mother and father are buried uh, uh, at uh, Fontev, Font oh goodness, my French, Fontevraud. Anyway, uh, he can't be buried there. He doesn't, doesn't belong to him anymore. So he, anyway, so he, he is buried at Worcester and, um, I think I mentioned his tomb a few weeks ago and I have a mistake to correct because John, um, he has, uh, and, and this is typical um, of the era, a, an uh, well, um, a slab and then his effigy was on the top, the oldest lifelike effigy in England of a monarch. Um, and that would have been sat, I don't know, 10 inches off the floor, something like that. And um, the slab with his effigy on top. When Prince Arthur Tudor was buried there in the early 16th, 16th century, he had a tomb chest. And at that point, the Tudors uh, decided to give John a tomb chest as well. And it was assumed for a very long time that John's remains weren't actually in the place uh, of his of his um, of his tomb chest and with his effigy on top um, until I can't remember what year seventeen something when um, they wanted to move it because it is in front of the high altar bang smack in front of the high altar and uh, it was considered in the way although I've seen other um, other abbeys and cathedrals with the same idea but anyway they want they were going to move it assuming that his remains weren't actually in there and when they opened it up they discovered that actually his remains were in there um and uh unfortunately news got out that that, that the king's remains were there that um that he was i wouldn't say he, uh, he certainly wasn't intact i mean there was carcasses of maggots stuff around goo um so but but his so his regalia was still there you could basically you could you could tell they they measured him now, this is off the top of my head sorry i haven't written this down i think they measured him and he's he was five foot well you can google this it was shorter than i expected it was something like five foot nine something like that um but because news had got around that uh, that you could come and now see the king, um, 
he had to be reburied fairly quickly. And actually, people had already taken souvenirs. And this is why, again, in Worcester Archives and on display in their uh, library, um, if you have a private tour, like we're going to on the Rise of the Tudors next year, uh, his thumb bone is in there. That's why it's there, because it was actually kept by a family um, whose descendant, it, in, in the end, gave it to, back to the cathedral. Um, so and that was the end of John. Um, like I said, with the with the um, uh, with with Henry the Second coming to the throne, people um, let, uh, altered their loyalty and went to him. Again, this is wonderfully covered in the Greatest Night by Thomas Ashbridge, because William Marshall, who is the um, the this is the, the this is the book about William Marshall. William Marshall is at Henry the Third's side, um, and it is under uh, his. And um, oh goodness, I can't remember. I never remember the other guy's name. There was two advisors that Henry the Third had, and under their um, uh, their guidance, but more than that, more hands on than that. Magna Carta was re um, uh, reissued as a royal charter again. So remember, Magna Carta was basically a list of barons' demands. It was very telling um, of uh, what John had been doing. You can kind of see what John must have been doing because it was all, this won't happen, that won't happen. Oh, Amanda, thank you. Five foot six and a half, according to Google. Yeah, decently tall for the time. They say that, but he's actually, his, um, his yeah, some of his forebearers, William, excuse me, uh, I thought they were taller than that, but anyway, um, yes, five foot six. I do you know. I wanted to say five foot six, and I thought, no, that sounds really too short. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. So remember, Magna Carta is this like list of almost admissions of what John's been like. Um, Magna Carta, when it's reissued in twelve seventeen, is a royal charter. It's issued as uh, from Henry the Third. With the advice of with with the um, strong guiding hand of his advisors, and this is why Magna Carta actually survives, and why we know of it, why it survives long enough for the Pilgrim Fathers to to take it um, over to the to to America. Anyway, so it's it's really um, uh, down to the fact that John dies um, <laughs> that we don't have a, another French. Well, potentially, I mean, who knows what would have happened, but uh, a, a, another French sort of invasion. Um, um, yeah, and we end up with Magna Carta still intact because John did the decent thing and popped off. Um, yeah, so there you go. Uh, we've done over an hour. Thank you, everybody, for uh, for keeping with me for that. Um, yeah, maybe he got his height from his mum and... <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, next week I'm going to be talking about, so I'm going somewhere tomorrow. It's a bit top secret at the moment, but I'm going somewhere tomorrow. So next week I will be telling you all about that. Um, if you haven't already, then 
and you're interested, of course, um, you can get your tickets for the Tudors Online History Festival, which I'm, I'm going through all the videos at the moment. So I will be able to share with you like little um, sound bites from them soon. So you can make your decision if you haven't already as to whether you want to uh, want to attend. But the tickets are £20. I don't know where that is, whatever that is in your uh in your currency if you're a member of my patreon then you you get 10% off those tickets but we've got um we've got seven speakers and all seven of those speakers will be at the live Q&A session which we have on the final evening that's sunday the 19th of november um if you can't make the uh well, if you can't make the weekend, which is 17th to 19th of November, and you can't, or you can't, and or you can't make the live sessions, um, everyone with a ticket will have access to all of the talks and the recordings of the live sessions. So, um, so I think you'll really enjoy it. The, the talks are quite varied. I, I purposely um, allow the speakers or invite the speakers, should I say, I allow them, invite them to speak on a topic that they're um, they're very interested in. So we have Tracy Borman talking about the relationship between Anne Boleyn and well, about um, Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, um, how they impacted on each other. It's really quite moving in places. Um, Gareth Russell is talking about Edward VI's um, favourite Barnaby Fitzpatrick, the rise, fall and rise of Barnaby Fitzpatrick. Very um, interesting, not just for the man, but the context of how this boy ends up being uh, uh, raised in the royal classroom alongside Prince Edward. Uh, what happens to him when Edward becomes king and afterwards? And it, and and. And had Edward have lived, he would probably have been a name we would know as well as someone like a Charles Brandon. Um, so uh, we have Cat Marchant talking about Shakespeare versus the Puritans, very theatre-led, uh, if you're interested in that. Elyri Lynn is talking about Tudor fashion and how fashion is used in the court to uh, to demonstrate power or also the changes in the in the fashion. Uh, Joanne Paul is talking about the women of the House of Dudley. So this is a brand new talk based on her book, The House of Dudley, but a, a new talk um, that from any she's done anywhere else because she's focusing just on the women and the women of the House of Dudley. If you've seen my interview with Joanne, you'll know this already, is they they were pivotal in uh main in in saving actually the like literally physically saving sometimes um uh members of the male members of their family and certainly getting the family reputation and standing back um it's fascinating so joanne is talking about that estelle perron uh is talking about um elizabeth the first and catherine de medici the search for is it such for a sort of mother-daughter relationship really interesting um and there's oh and so how could I forget James Clark talking about Henry VIII and the dissolution of the monasteries I could go on about the dissolution of the monasteries honestly everyone you know by now if you're interested if you want to know why I'm smiling so much about that please check out my series um well, well it's this actually it's James James was doing all the talking um he um he's written um a book it's like this big called The Dissolution of the Monasteries, A New uh, History. He's a history professor at Exeter University. Um, and there's a series that 
done on YouTube. He's he's done another talk about Henry VIII and the dissolution. You might not think there's enough to talk about. You, you will know that there's that you will you will it will make perfect sense after you after you watch it. So all seven of those people, all seven of those incredible historians, will be joining us live for a Q and A at um, on, on the Sunday evening on the nineteenth of November. If you know you won't be able to make that live session, you can submit your question um, prior to prior to the evening, and you can get those tickets at the Tudors twenty twenty three dot eventbrite dot co dot uk. And like I said, the twenty pounds. Uh, Manda has just done a quick calculation: twenty four dollars thirty in the US. So, so there you go. As we speak, um, and like I say, if you're a patron, if you're a member of my Patreon, which you can be at patreon.com forward slash British History, then you can get your you can get ten percent off off that ticket. Right, everyone. I don't know how you're feeling but I hope you have a lovely day I'm going to go off and have a drink because I'm all dehydrated now after speaking so long if you're around tonight for history after dark we're beginning at the slightly later time of 8 30 and we're talking about the bishops of Winchester and crossbones uh, ceremony oh thank you clean as a as it should just remind me the reading material I'm just going to give you a reminder so the Plantagenets by Dan Jones I have that on audible so I don't have a book to um to show you but King John Mark by Mark Morris and one of my favorite books The Greatest Night which is all about William Marshall um covers all sorts of things you didn't know you didn't know like the beginning of heraldry how knighthood and chivalry um developed what they did before they joust did jousts I mean you yeah you'll love it and anyway, it's by thomas ashbridge so maybe see you tonight for history after dark history after dark on instagram history after dark on youtube otherwise i will see you next week where i'll tell you all about the top secret place that i'm going to tomorrow so hopefully i will see you next week all right everyone take care i'll see you soon <laughs>